0: Most people are surprised that I walk on two legs. And uh, the idea that I would have a wife or a child or, I think I said this, even a mother, that seems to surprise me. I think people think I'm a, very much maybe a violent version of that comic strip.
1: Hello and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, today I'm gonna be talking about the life of Hunter S. Thompson. I'm providing the show with some stateside credentials. I'm thrilled to be joined by Caleb James of the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast. Drunken Pen do episodes on books, writing tips and habits and at their website, drunkenpenwriting.com, they also publish and share short stories, poetry and articles. So go check them out when you can. Caleb and I screamed our way through Hunter S. Thompson's life started off by swapping some podcast and quarantine stories
2: yeah we do an episode a week and then we do um whenever we do bookcast episodes which uh were fun because we did the robert e howard conan series recently so that was a, a second episode a week that was a separate series um and then uh we have an inebriated book reading challenge i do with uh ashley that's on drunken pen writing and that's fun because we read either difficult books or we just did Catcher in the Rye and just pretty much complained about how awful it is. And uh, <laughs> uh, those those are fun. So we've been playing around with different series and stuff, but we have one main episode that's every week, and we haven't missed one yet. It's it's not too much of a painstaking process to edit our video or our recordings, but you you have scripts and stuff, so I'd imagine that's pretty daunting at times.
1: Yeah, they, well, sometimes um, I I'm just really uh, terrible at giving giving line readings of my own um, scripts. So like you, you type it all up and you're really, really into it and it comes to record it and it's like, you know, either really, really late at night or you're trying to scramble to do it first. Well, thing I don't next know next how morning. you
2: have any kind of regularity because some of the, like you just did what, Don Quixote? That is, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot to cover. I don't know how you'd be <laughs> able to just like write a script for that and cover it. I feel like I wouldn't be doing any personal writing or anything. That's all I'd be doing was focusing on those episodes of the podcast, that's why I didn't go that direction.
1: We recorded. Me and Adams talked about Don Quixote. I think like six months ago, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I just re- like just finished editing and like <laughs> the writing it. <laughs> <Jeez>, that's <laughs> that, that's how that, that's how it actually happens. It's not uh, like I'm working on it full on, but it's just it gets too much. You do something else, you lose pace. It's a nightmare at the moment, though. With um, well, it's like. It's not a nightmare in in the grand scheme, but with coronavirus, it feels like everything we're putting out at the moment is just insane. Because I think we have put out one saying, "Oh, I hope you, hope you, everyone's all right," uh, and then we've like had a backlog of stuff that's from six months ago. Yeah, talk, talking about like, oh yeah, today <laughs> I was um you know down at the pub. Um, it's just like no uh, consistency.
2: Ours is the opposite, since we are you know weekly. It's always a week behind. So by the time we did, we, we've been trying to just uh, either with our cold intros or just a little bit here, there, keep people up to date on what's going on in our area. So yeah. whenever we have a new episode, all the rules and laws have changed drastically since the last week's episode. And again, because we're behind it, uh, it kind of sounds a little weird because we thought, oh, yeah, we were at the store today, but now we're not allowed at the store. <laughs> it's just it's a little yeah. goofy.
1: So before we started recording, you mentioned you you've got curfews now
2: um Um. we're n- apparently not allowed out past eight o'clock I uh, since uh at work I haven't been as busy because so many bu- I deliver to businesses so, so many are closed right now uh my days yeah. are kind of cut in half so normally I unless we went to uh like me and my girlfriend would go out to eat or like we do a lot of stuff on the weekends that's the main things so and now we're kind of bored with that but during the week i would go to the gym and that's about it I'm pretty much a homebody anyway so it yeah. hasn't affected me too much, um, but as far as all the stores and like Walmart and stuff, even though they're supposed to be twenty four hours, now they actually close at like eight o'clock. You're not Jeez. allowed. I see. I don't know how how they're um, like how the police are handling this because they don't want to pull people over. So mm-hmm. now, when like if you're on the interstate, all the eighteen um, wheelers, they are just they're breaking all the laws because there's no uh, regulations form right now. They can do whatever they want. So it's really it's like it's a Mad Max Fury Road out there. It's terrible. Um,
1: Is there anyone like enforcing the curfew? Have you seen any?
2: That's what I was. I'm not sure. I know some people are because the cops will patrol and I guess they will get you if you're out. But it's see, like there's a apparently come Monday, uh, Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, people, there's a talk of them protesting in mass from Pennsylvania to reopen, which I think is a terrible idea is to just reopen everything. Yeah. Um and that's going on all over the states people just protesting and going crazy. We have uh like a lot of weird liquor things right now in the state because Pennsylvania has state run liquor stores and they all closed, but other states don't have that. You could just go to gas stations or wherever you want. So people in my area cuz we're close to West Virginia are going to West Virginia to get their alcohol <laughs> and the cops are <laughs> sending them back. <laughs> they say if they see your Pennsylvania license, they won't sell to you. And if they see your out-of-state license plate, you, you get harassed. And it's like, it's, oh it's just so weird. I never thought I would see this where you can't even go to the neighboring state without being threatened by law enforcement.
1: Jesus. Because they won't to arrest you. Stocked up?
2: Um, well, I work in a beer to, uh, a big, giant beer warehouse, so I have plenty of alcohol. Oh, God, a uh, few. And some of the places I deliver to, because I deliver um, like the big five-gallon water jugs to most businesses, but I also Mm. do beer as well, and um, I go to different distributors and stuff like that, so we've been able to work out some shady business deals where if we want, (laughs) the bar owners, since they're not allowed to actually have the bar open, they'll sell us their liquor uh, nice, just personally, and they ring it up as uh, beer or wine, because you're still allowed to sell beer or wine in the state. Uh, It's really stupid.
0: The critics have been unanimous in their praise of his book, but the Hells Angels haven't been heard from yet. Tonight, Sunday makes author meet critic. It brings together the writer Hunter Thompson and the reader antagonize the most. That's the bike rider, Hell's Angel, Cliff Workman. All right, I want to know why we didn't get the two kegs of beer that you promised us.
1: Cool. Well, should we um, should we jump into Hunter? Yeah, uh, we could do that. So I've got a. I I was going to just truck through his life um, chronologically because um, there's a few things I'd never heard of. And I was really surprised by. Um, Like people, uh, there's obviously, he's one of those writers where there's such a kind of cult of his life, but it's kind of concentrated around certain parts, like the writing of Fear and Loathing, The Hell's Angels, I guess like Owl Farm. He's
2: kind of like Ernest Hemingway in that the actual author's persona is more famous than his work, I feel. Yeah. Because other than Fear and Loathing, he had like Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail and a lot of articles in Rolling Stone, and uh, he's very heavy into politics. But in regards to his actual work, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and maybe The Rum Diaries are mostly what people know him for. And even then, I would say a lot of people haven't really read those. It's like the older generation that's read his work. So they just actually know the author as his persona, which is uh, Raul Duke.
1: Raul Duke, yeah. And I think also people's knowledge of those, if they haven't read them, and even if they have, they're uh knowledge of the work is kind of informed and a little bit um infected by the film stuff and also the just the kind of the legend surrounding it like it's it focuses quite a lot on did this actually happen or you know was he did he make a lot of it up
2: um i was trying to find the quote i think it was either an editor at rolling stone or one of his friends but the quote was something like because it was discussing a. Uh, Gonzo journalism and how it came to be and they said especially his later work it was very hard to tell where reality ends and the fiction begins because his style of writing you never really knew what was real and that's why it uh, caught on the way it did because nobody wrote like that before you could kind of if you watch his interviews you can tell in the mid 80s when things started shifting for him and the drugs and the alcohol abuse you could tell how his mind was deteriorating and um i think his work really suffered from that i think even johnny depp who spent a lot of time with him talked about uh how in his later life he wasn't writing a lot and it actually wasn't that he wasn't writing a lot he just wasn't writing things that could be published really because Mm -hmm. uh it'd either be nonsensical or it would have really like, poignant, hard-hitting moments in the work, but then the rest of it was almost nonsense or just was jumbled together. It, it, almost like ravings of a madman, kind of. Uh, like, that, that'd be the way to think of it, because he was on drugs every day. Like, yeah, you can't... Yeah. How long can you do that kind of stuff before it would catch up to you? I would imagine not very long.
1: It's funny, I read this... Um, I'm not sure if you've, if you've read it. It's called Gonzo. It's, a, like, a verbal history um, of Huntress Thompson. I
2: saw um, there was a documentary of the same title I think on YouTube. I haven't checked it out yet, but yeah, I haven't yeah. read that.
1: Yeah, it's um so it's it's a bunch of people who who um who knew him um just basically giving little bits of insight throughout his his life and um the miss, sort of misinformation and complete lack of consensus about how much drugs uh he took, how often What his tolerance was like is completely baffling.
2: Again, it also comes down to his persona. How much of it was embellished? How much was true? How much was he uh, kind of putting on a show for the people around him? Now, as far as alcohol use, I believe that was a constant. The drug abuse, it seemed like a constant from what you know about him. But, um, for instance, when he would get uh, asked, I think, later in life to speak at like Harvard or some kind of thing, uh, like a university to do lectures, he... Was almost like a self like self-induced schizophrenia, and where he didn't know if it should be his persona that he should be, and that's what the people wanted to see, or if it was the actual Hunter S. Thompson because yeah. he didn't act like himself in public. Um, and I would say, as far as the drug use, again, like I watched a video right before this, and he was taught, he was sitting there mixing a drink with ice, and he said he soaked the ice in chlorophyll. I was like, Why? I was like, what? And he said he never has a drink that doesn't have a little bit of chlorophyll in it. Um <laughs> I don't I don't know what that does for you. I don't know what drinking that would be like, but it doesn't sound good.
1: Pranks <laughs> seem to be such a big part of his um his life. Like yes. I was reading about his uh, childhood, which I knew nothing about. So he's he's born in I think 1937 in Kentucky.
2: Yeah, he was born in Kentucky. Um I forget. I just read about that yesterday too um
1: what's kentucky it, like just as a i d I I've mean, it's a racial profiling and assuming you've been there you pro- <laughs> no, i have no not
2: idea. been to i have not <laughs> been to I, I might have i think i've driven through kentucky a couple times and all i remember was farmlands uh yeah. from what i know about kentucky it would be country bumpkins that's a yeah. awful stereotype but that's all i really have <laughs> um maybe like if you think of Tom Sawyer, maybe that kind of lifestyle still going on to a degree. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think Johnny Depp also came from Kentucky too. Just because those teams, uh, those two seem very intertwined, which we could talk about later. Uh, Going back to his parents though, Mm. um, I forget what his mom and his father did for a living, but I know his dad, like it seemed like his childhood was okay for a little bit. And at some point I think his dad was 57 years old and he died. And then his mom became an alcoholic and around yeah. that time is when Hunter seemed to uh, start getting in trouble with the law. Um, again, I just I reread the Wikipedia. I didn't read his actual biography, so they glossed over all his legal stuff. But I mean, he was in the millet of the Air Force for a while, and he got honorably discharged. But <laughs> the <laughs> the like the quote that was attributed to whoever was in charge of uh, you know discharging him, it was something along the lines of pretty much saying he was like a rebel and he was corrupting everyone else in his unit or something yeah. um <laughs> i think i read that they,
1: they wrote something like uh ways he's, he's a terrible influence but um as an airman he's not without talent yeah that it was something along <laughs> it sounds those like lines. a school report doesn't it uh-huh. but um, he
2: even uh because he was in uh, like an athletic club in, uh i think in his uh elementary middle school years and when he went into high school he uh didn't get into athletics so much, but he got into a literary club, and then he got kicked out of that, I believe. And I think he also was like yearbook newspaper, whatever they had back then. He uh, he got kicked out because he got arrested for like burglary or something. I mean, yeah, something just, uh,
1: like... I think he was an accessory to um, a robbery or something. Yeah, But he was also ridiculous. he was in trouble for doing like these weird pranks. Like he he and his mate would do um, they would like fake kidnappings. Mm-hmm. So they, they would one of them would dress up as an old woman and um, they'd like bungle him into the back of a car, and they did this in front of a judge once, and they got kind of obviously in trouble for that.
2: That makes you wonder, again, if that persona that he always stated he put on was really a persona, because it just seems like that was him. Well, there's an interesting
1: quote about it, because his mate that he did it with went on to become a performance artist. And mm. so he was saying things like, "When I became a professional performance artist, we were doing things like this, but they were all simulated, and it was, you know, part of, you know, it was our art. It was very obviously like a, a show." And um, Hunter just—he was saying like that sort of take on it was just completely not understood, and <laughs> by, by Hunter, and <laughs> right. he said, "I felt like later in life we were kind of doing the same thing, except I was calling it performance art, and he was just, you know, <laughs> being Hunter F. Thompson."
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, in his early life, because I don't think he graduated from school either. I think he was kicked out and he just went straight to the Air Force. But He, he didn't actually, graduate
1: because he was in prison. And he, yeah. he asked to sit his final exams and they said no because he was in prison for like 30 days.
2: <laughs> that, that explains it. Yeah. But it was weird because he was always getting fired, yet he held a series of uh, what I would say either very important or... Uh, No, not so much important, but just like, you know, big time. He worked for big time magazines. He worked all over the country, worked in Puerto Rico for a while. He had a lot of jobs, like very good jobs. And he always got fired or quit or had some kind of very weird problem arise in a very short amount of time while he was working for whatever publication or uh, I think the longest job he he held besides Rolling Stone was uh, he was like a security guard for nine months or something, I think, in California. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I would imagine he just spent most of that time writing or coming up with ideas for stuff uh, he
1: just seemed definitely. like one of
2: those guys that couldn't work a steady 9 to 5 job that just wasn't in him
1: no and couldn't write like um, kind of like the the novelists he uh, admired I mean Jesus Fitzgerald and Hemingway weren't exactly uh, drug free
2: and the interesting thing about his style is he learned how to write by copying the great Gatsby and uh, I think For the For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. He typed in Farewell to Arms, I think. Farewell to Arms, yeah, maybe that was it. He um, learned how to write, though, by copying those books, and especially Fitzgerald, that's that's a very heavy style. It's very verbose, and Hunter Mm. S. Thompson didn't write like that. So it was interesting that maybe he just learned how to tell a story that way, like those guys, but he didn't actually. Hemingway maybe a little more with the journalism style, but he did not actually copy their style in regards to his personal writing.
1: No, he they, didn't implement like... their
2: style at all.
1: Yeah, he um, his his uh, editor when he was in Puerto Rico, I think he was writing for the something like the San Juan Star. Um, said he he actually thought of himself as a kind of um Gatsby, uh, and was when when someone said you know. Gatsby's over. There won't be any more Gatsby's in the world. He was, he was took serious, kind of mm-hmm. uh, umbrage with it. Didn't like Kerouac, apparently. Um, to but... be
2: fair, I don't think a lot of people like Kerouac. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he, he loved, um, Neil Cassidy. He, so he valued Kerouac for introducing the world to him, but, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't a fan of the writing.
2: Um, just going to Kerouac for a second, mm. I think it is actually, um, A good parallel between the two, because I would consider Hunter S. Thompson, just like Kerouac, um, a time period writer. Because Kerouac was the beatnik generation, and after that fell out, he wasn't really, I don't think, well, I don't remember when he died, an alcoholic. uh, He was a wino. Mm. But he only, him and kind of that generation, they only really wrote during maybe the 50s and most of the 60s and some of the 70s. And Hunter S. Thompson kind of was like that too. Like Fear and Loathing was about the end of kind of the uh, drug generation, and uh, then he started. He switched to uh, like the politics of the seventies, and then in the eighties, he wasn't really creating original work anymore. He was mainly just uh, writing for Rolling Stone, just random articles and things like that. But
1: yeah, if you really look at him, his he, stuff.
2: Yeah, if you look at him, you know, he really was just kind of a time period writer, like jack kerouac um, or even i would say a fitzgerald because fitzgerald you think of the roaring 20s uh Mm. but outside of that you don't really think of fitzgerald in any other time period
1: i mean the thing they've all got common is they're kind of uh they are associated with a certain time but they're also all um alcoholics yeah (laughs) And, (laughs) and sort of have their talent corroded by that which kind of puts a little um time bomb on all of them
2: right uh Jack Kerouac had to be a severe alcoholic, because if you could drink yourself to death on wine, because that was his go-to drink, that seems pretty, uh, you have to drink a lot of wine to get hammered drunk every day, I would think, because I I don't get drunk off of wine too easily. Um,
1: I mean, it can be done. It can be
2: done, I've done it, and you feel (laughs) awful, (laughs) it's a good way to get diabetes too, probably, which I think he might have had as well. Um, Yeah, he
1: had all kinds of strange health issues, didn't he, Kerouac?
2: Yeah, he wasn't a healthy individual at all. Um yeah. the only work uh, of his I read was uh Dharma Bums. I didn't read on uh I didn't read on The Road, which I mm. should, but his his style was okay, but it's it's not all that interesting outside of the time period, at least at least for me.
1: I think Hunt, um the way that Hunter S. Thompson saw the Beats was he he liked their uh he liked that they were kind of apolitical but had kind of strong artistic ideas. And he loathed the hippies that came afterwards who didn't have any political ideals and didn't have any artistic ones. He considered sort of them simply labor. druggies. Yeah, yeah, they
2: were just burnout druggies. They didn't stand for anything, even though they pretended they did. Because mm. he came from the revolutionary hippies that actually wanted to make a difference. And then the ones that followed, uh, they were just kind of bums. Yeah. Which, which would be a Kerouac. Kerouac was kind of a bum. I mean, he just he was almost a transit for transient for most of his life or his adult life where he was just riding the rails and drinking and maybe holding various jobs just to get by, but he didn't really stand for much either.
1: Yeah. Um, he was a sports editor in uh, Pennsylvania at one point, Huntress Thompson.
2: Yes. Uh, I, f- I forget what he was writing about. He was a major football lover though. So I would imagine, um, local that football. That was one thing stuff. I
1: didn't know how much he loved sports. Um, yeah, that
2: was, on uh, his. uh, they say it's a suicide note, I believe, but it was about uh football ending. That was one of the things like, cause Feb- he hated the month of February because he lived in Colorado and the winters were gloomy and then also football ended. And that's what he, <laughs> that's what he was obsessed with, I guess. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I never thought of football being something that would, uh, you know, want to end my life if it was over for the year. Uh, that seems well, given harsh. that all
1: football's currently canceled, I hope there aren't, if we, when we all come out of this, there's. A lot less uh, football fans.
2: I would, I would not be opposed to that. That'd be okay, <laughs> my boy. <book.
1: laughs> uh, it's the right kind of plague. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he to- he even told um, uh, Ralph Steadman, his illustrator, that his uh, limp was a football injury. Yeah. Um, though apparently he just had one leg shorter than the other, but uh, yeah, he didn't actually football play football injury I don't sounded believe.
2: better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that but, was also just. Quick side note with the football, um, he hated everything Richard Nixon stood for and hated mm-hmm. his guts as much as any man can hate another man. But they did have one thing in common. I believe they even had a really good conversation about it, and that was football because they were both football fans. I always thought that was funny because uh, you have two guys on the complete end of the spe- political spectrum, <laughs> and they could still bond over something that stupid. But again, hated his guts too. Yeah, I'd love corpse, to read but. some of his
1: writing on football. I'd love to sort of see what it was that he uh, he got out of it.
2: Yeah, it would be interesting to see uh, get a kind of a view on how passionate he really was. Because I, I, never, I haven't even read his political stuff really, because he was those are two things he was really passionate about. If you don't count drugs and alcohol, uh, <laughs> football and politics. Which yeah. again there's also kind of a strange combination, because I don't know how it is your way, but out here. People who follow sports really closely don't tend to follow politics too much, and vice versa.
1: No, they don't tend to be into literature either, so it's a kind of an unlikely triangle of Hunter S. Thompson.
0: Right. Everybody's said, well, uh, I can't seem to find the rumbearing. Where's yeah, the rumbearing. And I... Uh i thought uh i'll well, we have a little time with this it's kind of a romantic notion you know that money and uh i, mean, I was faced with the idea with a of having to dig up my 40 year old you know story you can't change it
2: and confronting it like ye gods <laughs> this is me this is the world i lived in we did an episode that was more about like just crazy facts about hunter and then we, because uh, we both read *Fear and Loathing*. I don't remember if we did an actual episode on that, or if we just tied that in. Because um, we're like over a hundred episodes in now, so.
1: Have you? Did you say you had read *The Rum Diary*? Or...
2: Yeah, I, I haven't read *The Rum Diary*, but that was about his time in Puerto Rico, right?
1: Yeah, in the uh, 1960, I think he went there first time, and he wrote. He actually, when he was there, he wrote um, his first novel called *Prince Jellyfish*, which I'd never heard of. Um, yeah, I think
2: that one was that the one that went unpublished. He had one full yeah. novel that never was published.
1: Yeah, maybe even more than that. Um, I mean, I know he wasn't happy with it. I think I think maybe sometime later on he wrote something that was never never published either. But in Puerto Rico, he's he's basically like broke, working for the San Juan Star, um, but kind of without an income and living because uh, I think it went defunct. Sort of almost as soon as he got there. This is something that keeps happening to him. Like he, he yeah. gets somewhere. Like later, he gets signed to write. Um, I mean, how good does this sound? Uh, he Hunter S. Thompson is assigned to write *Fear and Loathing* in Vietnam uh, at the end of the war, and he's sort of flown out there. Um, but it literally just ends, and he's just flown back. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that,
2: that, that. But he. It wasn't as simple as that. He was put in like grave danger, I believe. From what I remember, I saw in the documentary or something, he was uh, put in, like, a very precarious situation as soon as he got there. Then it was just canceled. And he was like, oh, that was – put my life on the line for nothing. And that was uh, where him and the editor became uh, more estranged, I guess. I guess they kind of – not a feud, but they just – it really frayed their their tie together because they were pretty close friends before that, I believe.
1: Is it um, Jan or Jan? No. Uh, That guy, Uh no?
2: I forget the name. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. It, it was uh, who? It was somebody who was there. Uh,
1: Someone at was Rolling close. Stone.
2: Yeah, it, it was the guy was he was close enough with them that uh, even after Hunter S. Thompson stopped submitting anything to the Rolling Stone and stuff, they always had his name permanently in the book as a contributor. Mm. Uh, so they they there's still a somewhat closeness, but yeah, there were uh, again. How much did uh, Drugs. I'm sure the guys, the editors of Rolling Stones, were heavy drug users as well. So,
1: and um, also like the hero worshipping Hunter S. Thompson. I think that's one of the reasons he he kind of uh, got the treatment he did, mm-hmm. um, even though he wasn't really handing anything in at that point, uh, or, or just publishing his old stuff.
2: He also had a bad habit where literally before a deadline or right when the magazine's going to the presses. He would submit like 27 pages of just random garbage to him for, so that they would have to read it even though it was just – like I don't know if it was a prank or if he just did it because he thought it was something poignant. But he did that very often, like all the time. He would send them just garbage right at the deadline. So they have to stop everything to read it to see if it was worth putting in. Um, another uh, thing that, that uh, severed his – this was on the opposite end, another reason. This is what he did to piss Rolling Stone off, was the rumble in the jungle. Um, yeah, He went over there to cover the Ollie Foreman fight, and then he just didn't. <laughs> he just went and did a lot of drugs and just didn't cover it, and it was the biggest sporting event in history at the time.
1: Uh, that I, I, think I that heard something great out. about that. So he t- he turns up to the hotel and he just says, oh, I'm just going to make it up um and basically gets into the like throws a big huge bag of marijuana into the pool and dives in um and decides to spend the time and the money that way uh ralph steadman's with him and so he's like well are we actually going to do anything and he goes no no i'm out so ralph <laughs> steadman draws a fake drawing of the of like the knockout but not knowing sort of Didn't what the result it. of the fight is so yeah. he's just sort of <laughs> sort of guessing hoping he gets it right yeah and Norman Mailer's there, you know, who's obviously yeah, wrote, Norman wrote there. the famous uh, take on the fight, right? Yeah, that fight. So. Yeah, he was, But uh, he's there, like, on the flight in and the flight out that Hunter's on, and Hunter's going like, yeah, I've got this in the bag. I'm just going to make it up. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> um, you guys are, are schmucks, basically. Um, but gets it yeah, totally wrong. Yeah, didn't work wrong. out for him at all. <laughs> no. I, um,
2: um, why would you throw a bag of marijuana in the pool? Wouldn't that destroy it?
1: I think that's a chlorophyll type of thing that is just <laughs> not going to get <laughs> understood.
0: <sighs>
1: oh. I mean, there's loads of things like, you just wonder, like, why would you do that? And the kind of things where you go, like, not only is that surprising because it's sort of, like, mad, but it's also surprising from the perspective of an addict because it's so wasteful or, or weird, like like the big bag of marijuana. Um, yeah, that, One great true. story that stuck out, I think it's it's earlier it's it's sometime in the 60s i think just before he gets uh married is he's in brazil and one of his friends finds him walking drunk along um copacabana beach i don't actually know where is that in rio i think so yeah yeah um and uh his friend goes up to him and and hunter's like well you think i'm drunk you should see how drunk uh you should see how drunk the thing in my pocket is and uh he shows him that he's got a, a monkey in his pocket <laughs> that's just pissed off its face and uh he tells he tells this big long story about that kind of day and just as a footnote to the story he goes um the uh, the monkey ended up committing suicide uh a maid a maid saw it jump 10 stories to its death <laughs> oh, <that's sad>. animal <laughs> cruelty does recur quite a lot in the story of uh of hunter s thompson unfortunately
2: um, I don't know if that has anything to do with him being a crazy gun nut, but it might because he was in the NRA. He owned countless assault rifles, shotguns, pistols, Uh, I, I, homemade bombs of sorts, I read. Yeah. Um, he had some kind of like gas canisters. I don't know if it's like tear gas. Uh, and then there's the famous video of him online where the neighbor, he has a dispute, land dispute with his neighbor. And somebody's interviewing him and he is uh, having a gunfight with the neighbor during the interview. The uh, neighbor's shooting buckshot at him, and he's screaming, Are you shooting bum, bum, buckshot at me, blah, blah, And then he's shooting, like, a revolver or something back. <laughs> like,
1: conducting an interview.
2: Um, I think he paused the interview to have the gunfight. But, yeah, there was uh, somebody there filming it, and it, it's, it's only, like, 45 seconds, but it's ridiculous. Um, and that was a daily occurrence for Mr. Hunter S. Thompson, apparently, is just to have gunfights with his neighbors. Yeah. Seems dangerous, but I guess if nobody got hurt, it's all fun.
1: I I read something about when, uh, I think it was when Johnny Depp was prepping for uh, Fear and Loathing. He was staying with uh, Hunter S. Thompson. He uh, was in bed on his own and putting his cigarette out on his nightstand when he noticed that his nightstand was actually a powder keg. Yeah, uh, a huge
2: powder keg.
1: And he jumped up and sort of said like, Holy shit! Is that is that a powder keg? And Hunter S. Thompson comes in and says, oh, "That's where that is." <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's so dangerous! The fact I mean, the that amount he never, of people,
1: the fact that he never murdered anyone. I know it's it's insane. It's amazing. He never blew himself
2: up. He never murdered anybody. Um, like if you think about now, again, this could be fictional. Going back to the Gonzo journalism, but the scene in Fear and Loathing where he. He he gets a a car. I think it's a Cadillac or something. I forget. And he pumps up the tire for no reason. Pumps up the tires to the point of them almost bursting. And the 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 person who the attendant is freaking out. And he's what are you doing? You can't pump up the tires like that. And he, he's ready for the blow up. He's like no no no. Th- these cars are made for that. And then he drives off the curb and starts driving away. And he's talking about it, it's like he's floating on a cloud. It's it feels super dangerous because you keep, like, imagine having your tires. Inflated to the point of bursting, and then you're going eighty miles down the like the highway. But he describes it that he even knows after he starts driving it what an awful, dangerous idea it is, and then he can either get himself killed or wreck and kill somebody else. But he does it anyway for no, yeah. just because he he just wanted to.
1: He he just seems completely impulsive all the time, like just total chaos. Like I, I, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, but when he got married, his proposed I think his wife is called Sandy, who he had his um his only um, child with. And his uh, his proposal amounted to saying to her, like, basically, get in the car. And when <laughs> she said, where are we going? He went, Indiana. And she's like, what for? To get married. And that was it.
2: It's very just... romantic. And why Indiana? That's an awful state.
1: <laughs> no idea. There wasn't... I don't think there's any more information of why why it was going to be Indiana.
2: I'd rather go to Kentucky than Indiana.
1: Yeah. Uh. I I'd, I'd say yeah, like I know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah, his son, uh, Juan, Juan Fitzgerald Thompson, he wrote a book as well called, I've got it over there. What's it called Stories I Tell Myself. And it's all about growing up with Hunter S. Thompson. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's not a book to read if you're after a bunch of fun kind of uh, classic Hunter S. Thompson anecdotes with uh, all the madness and the gonzo side of things. But it's it's pretty revealing about what it's like to actually live with someone who's kind of on that level all the time.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember reading about that, and it, uh, from what I understand, kind of discusses it almost as a mental illness. Like, what would it be what would it be like living with somebody that had a mental illness or a severe addiction? Uh, more of a somber read. It's not. Yeah, like you said, it's not going to be fun stories about Hunter Thompson. It's uh, more of a serious look into him, which you didn't get really too much in his while he was alive.
1: No. And it includes like serious kind of letters from him um, and and some of the nasty stuff as well, which is uh, a kind of different side to him, which does, his image does get uh, sanitized. And we do, you know, it's like with anyone who can sort of handle their alcohol or drugs. They do kind of, it's like Keith, Keith Richards. Right. They come kind of become comedy characters and we don't really think about what it's actually like psychologically.
2: Yeah, again, it goes, you know, I don't want to keep repeating about the persona, but when you have that persona, it becomes kind of like a fun thing for people to think about you in that way, but they didn't, they stop thinking of it as something serious. Whereas if you had a straight-laced writer all of a sudden go into drugs and alcohol, you'd be worried about them, like, oh, this isn't their normal behavior, we should check into them. But when you have a guy like Hunter S. Thompson where that was his whole life, people kind of, uh, they expect it. And then they just kind of ignore it. Like, unless yeah. he's doing something personal to them that's pissing them off or causing them harm or danger, they uh, they just they don't really care too much. They just think, ah, oh, that's how he is. They just let him be. And that's... that's A guy like that, though, I don't think would accept accepted help, but he definitely needed it at some point in his life, probably starting in the mid-'80s, honestly.
1: Yeah, well, he, he did reject help a couple of times, and a couple of friends did try and get him. And I think in one of his friends tried to got him in rehab for like a week and he got his dealer to like break him out um <laughs> but he was i think he he was a bit um paranoid i mean he was paranoid a lot of times but he was uh paranoid about his death he was close he was weirdly close with a bunch of snl people which was uh, another surprise i think um, because
2: during that time period they were also heavy drug users
1: yeah, so he was he was friends with is it Jim or John the one who died Belushi?
2: Uh, John Belushi. Yeah, died. Jim's the uh, unfunny Jim's the brother. living one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the one yeah. the one that makes you go oh why why is he the one here? Yeah, yeah, He's the more untalented one. I don't have anything against Jim Belushi. I just don't think he's very funny.
1: Nah. Um. He uh. He, he hung out with John Belushi, and I think when he died, he kind of um, Huntress Thompson got kind of freaked. And he was he did have a kind of interest in the like um death side of things he, he was researching why Hemingway shot himself for a while he was trying to write an article on that
2: um, um I have a quote here somewhere I don't remember if it was Stedman or um this might have been Stedman I'm not sure but he because he, Hunter Thompson kind of always had it in his head that he was going to kill himself at one point um mm-hmm. So the quote is he told me 25 years ago that he would feel real trapped if he didn't know that he could commit suicide at any moment. I don't know if that is brave or stupid or what, but it was inevitable. I think that the truth of what rings through all his writing is that he meant what he said. If that is entertainment to you, well that's okay. If you think that it enli- enlightened you, well that's even better. If you wonder if he's gone to heaven or hell, rest assured he will check out them both, find out which one Richard Milhouse Nixon went to and go there. He could never stand being bored. But there must be football too and peacocks. That kind of sums up his whole life. That's Um, great. But he, you know, he was a guy who lived on his own terms. And where Hemingway was more of the mental illness aspect, that, uh, because that was, uh, for Hemingway, I believe his like father and sister, like he has a history of people in his family killing themselves. Mm. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, I don't think it was so much uh, that he was upset about or like it wasn't so much he had mental illness that led him to it it was that he didn't really want to be alive after a certain point um, Yeah, he,
1: i don't think he wanted to be uh, basically debilitated
2: yeah his famous uh i think it got published in rolling stone it was it was his suicide note they called it um his actual suicide note was in his typewriter when he died i think it just said counselor but what they consider mm-hmm. his suicide note was uh no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming, 67, that is 17 years past 50, 17 more than I needed or wanted, boring, I am always bitchy, no fun, no fun for anybody, 67, you are getting greedy, act your age, relax, this won't hurt, so I think it was always in his mind that he was going to live to 50, and then after that, he probably wouldn't want to anymore, he would want to go out on his own terms, and that's ended up, you know, that's what happened.
1: Yeah. I think also the difference between um, uh, him and Hemingway is that Hemingway, even though Hemingway was the guy who said, um, writing's easy, you just sit at the typewriter and bleed, his his troubles kind of stopped him writing. Whereas early on, I think Huntress Thompson married his excesses to his talent a bit. And yeah. So they became a bit kind of codependent. We haven't talked about his Hell's Angels uh, experience yeah, that's all of these what, wacky phases in his life that he just...
2: That's what really put him on the map. Um, I think that's what made him famous with Rolling Stone, too, because that was before the 70s politics stuff got him on the, you know, got more people to know his name. Uh, yeah, because he became kind of a member of the Hells Angels and hung out with them and he wrote about them, and it wasn't until they got pissed off that they weren't getting any money from him even though he was getting money. They thought he was profiteering off of them. They... Uh, stomp the shit out of them like a very severe beating yeah. and uh then they had that very i don't know if you saw on youtube that very bizarre interview they did where it was hunter s thompson sitting across from one of the main leaders of the hell's angel and they discussed the beating and uh they all you know let people go watch that as they will because it was kind of a uh, gross on the hell's angel like you actually sympathize with hunter s thompson there uh But that, yeah, what a crazy life. Like, imagine joining one of the most violent biker gangs in the world. Pretty much just the the violent gang is what they were, a murderous gang. And he joined them just for, what, shits and giggles to see what it was like?
1: Yeah, and for a year as well. Not just like, you know, I'm going to go and sort of hang out with them and try and get a few interviews. Like, I'm basically going to be a Hells Angel for a year
2: he immersed himself in their culture and learned what it was like to be one of them i mean that takes a lot of balls but i guess if uh you're hunter s thompson that's just monday you know that's just a normal (laughs) normal thing to do for him but yeah that would scare the shit out of me i would not want to do that
1: i mean mean, when you read his biography it's like the least weird thing he did yeah that was like uh, it's just it's it's nuts he treated Um, it
2: almost as like he just kind of had a falling out with him Versus they tried to murder him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, pretty much what happened is they could have easily murdered him. Um, yeah, that was that's what put him on the map was uh, the, the write-up he did on that. And, I, oh, I think he had multiple pieces on it. And he might even had a, a – because they put a, a book, at least one book, but they might have multiple now of all his Rolling Stone articles um, mm. and his letters and things like that. And I think one major aspect of them is the Hells Angels part of his life.
1: Yeah and it's the it's the time when he realizes I think that even though he what he really wants to be as a novelist at least at this stage what's he's got like The Rum Diary and Prince Jellyfish basically sitting in a drawer and it's the journalism that's getting him uh like you say putting him on the map getting him successful. Um
2: yeah because even uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was a Rolling Stone piece. Like that was yeah. I think was that a serial piece that was like a monthly thing in rolling stone or was it just one like a not because it was that's a pretty long book for a magazine i would imagine
1: yeah no i think it was serialized first um in i think 71 Hmm. um uh there's a there's a really good bit in that book um the gonzo book about the editor getting that first chapter and it just being like nothing else <laughs> yeah
0: um, i am living a normal life you know, i own a, you know, a ranch in colorado and i have a wife and a child and uh
1: peacocks and So he after, um, after the success of um, Hell's Angels he that's when he sort of starts to become a bit of a, a celebrity um, moves to Woody Creek I think he'd already been in Aspen for a bit but he, that's when he sort of settles in owl Farm and Woody Creek. Mm -hmm. There's so many good stories about what goes on uh, at Woody Creek. I didn't realize that Jack Nicholson was his neighbor there. Yeah, Jack Uh,
2: Nicholson was at his funeral. A lot of celebrities were, but yeah, Jack Nicholson was his neighbor, and uh, they're
1: pretty close. They did. uh, He like uh, played sort of pranks, these ridiculous pranks on um, on Jack Nicholson, like something he played a load of animal screams and sort of gunfire noise for whatever speaker.
2: Yeah, for whatever reason, Hunter really got his rocks off by playing dying pig sounds to people. So yeah. he would he set that up and scared the shit out of Jack Nicholson and I think his girlfriend or wife at the time. And, and kids, uh, he, I think. Yeah, and uh, was it Keith Richards? Um, I think it was in the 90s. I don't know if it was Keith Richards. I want to say it was. But they they're supposed to interview him, and nobody could get in because he was having some kind of drug fit. And then Hunter S. Thompson did the the old, uh, there's a video of it on YouTube where I think he's playing, again, that, like, the pig sounds or something at the door. And then finally he gets in and they had the most bizarre interview I've ever seen. Uh, it's wonderful, though. But, yeah, I think that's how, that that was his go-to move for some reason. It was dying animal sounds and gunshots.
1: He thought that was funny. Pig noises, yeah. And he he left, um, on Jack Nicholson's doorstep, like, an elk heart. And apparently, like, everyone else around them were, were just really freaked out and thought that it was basically going to be another Manson murder. And that the yeah, like a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's just Hunter S. Thompson fucking about. Um, there was a guy um, who was a... Re- I think he was a reporter with Rolling Stone in the 90s who said um, he describes this, this uh, moment where Hunter S. Thompson comes and gives a speech, and it's like a rambling, digressive speech. Falls off stage, um, <laughs> spills a couple of people's drinks, but manages to keep his own um, unspilled. Of course. That's kind of a good up... metaphor
2: for his whole life. Knocks everybody else's drink down, but keeps his own.
1: His is totally, totally fine. And then he, he ends up speaking to K- Keith Richards, I think before that video. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he said it was absolutely fantastic to watch. It was like two dogs barking at each other, both completely incoherent. <laughs>
2: Makes you wonder if they actually understood each other. They were just both talking. Uh, yeah. Just imagining also, what the other one's saying. Yeah, He also had uh, a run as sheriff, I think, for Aspen.
1: Yeah, and, he did. 1970, and, ran for sheriff. And he actually almost won. He was leading
2: by a slim margin until he uh, had a piece run in Rolling Stone about it. And it actually turned people off of it. And he lost, barely. Uh, and I think there some political shenanigans with the Republicans and Democrats teaming up to so he win-win. Because he wanted yeah. to rename Aspen, I think, Fat City. And yep. then. Uh,
1: <laughs> to discourage the um, land rapers and jackals from moving in. It's a yeah, brilliant I, idea.
2: I, I like it. He also had. Uh, he didn't want tall buildings because he wanted you to be able to see the mountains. Uh, he had a lot of very progressive views when it came to. He was a very interesting man because he had, he, you know, he's all about freedom of speech. He wanted drugs, um, to be legal, all drugs, because he felt prohibition, which is, I think he described just like, the in the 1920s, prohibition just led to gangsters coming in and, uh, you know, bootlegging booze and making a lot of money. So he said, if you make drugs illegal, all you're doing is making criminals a lot of money. That was his view on it. So he wanted to decriminalize all drugs and least an Aspen and, uh. Even though he had very left views and he was a Democrat, he was a crazy gun nut. And he was very <laughs> far right when it came to privacy and le- small government. And it it's just – I would say maybe he was like a libertarian or a centrist or something. But he was, a, he was an odd guy politically. But Definitely. he really, really hated Nixon until George W. Bush – not to skip too far ahead. But when George W. Bush became president, he said he would gladly vote 100 times for Nixon over George W. Bush – so that that was a very uh you know damning thing to say for for a political figure but at the Somebody time he spent was a... his
1: life slagging off Nixon.
2: Yeah. But yeah. uh yeah going back to the you know the sheriff thing. Um after that that's when he kind of really got invested into politics and I like I said I haven't read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Uh was that the one that dealt with McGovern I think it was who was running against yeah, Nixon. Yeah, George McGovern. Um Yeah. And then he, the, the other guy that was running against McGovern, I think it was, uh, I forget that guy's name, but he made up a lie that said that guy was addicted to either, it was like mescaline or, it was some kind of weird drug. And then, and he <laughs> just said, yeah, he just said he completely made it up and everybody believed it. And then that guy didn't win because of that. And I thought that was hilarious that you can, it was kind of I think part of the, the contradiction
1: future. is how much he loved just like kind of fucking with people like when he's running for sheriff he shaved his head and so he could call his um well, long-haired opponent, <laughs> my, my long-haired opponent yeah um,
2: insinuate that he was a hippie because he had long hair yeah uh,
1: in fact that um the sheriff uh run he, he wrote a piece about it called the battle of aspen which is his first um rolling stone piece and that that's the one that kind of lost him it <laughs> but yeah. um the exposure led to um a, you were saying there was dirty political shenanigans. A Hells Angel rocked up to Al um, Farm and th- basically threatened to kill him and said <laughs> he'll, he'll burn down his house if you don't, like, call off your, ra- your race for sheriff. Jeez. Crazy. Whether the Hells Angels are wanting to kind of settle a score from a few years ago or not, I don't know. But uh, Yeah. But, uh, I mean, imagine if he had been, like, shot dead. Like, apparently there was a rule um, in the... Um, police department to, that if you hear any explosions from Woody Creek, uh, just ignore them. <laughs> it's, un- it's obviously unrest. So, I mean, if someone went up to his house and, like, you know, blew him to pieces, like, who's going to come?
2: It Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go there. Uh, yeah. He kind of seems like one of the last true free Americans because mm. with all the laws and, uh, they have so many local rules that you can't do in various states. Like, in a lot of the states, you can't even collect rainwater on your own land. Uh, and I think a lot of that's due is because we don't have rebel rousers like Hunter S. Thompson anymore who are famous and kind of rebel against these rules to make it hard for people to just implement them. Um, so, the, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing another writer come along that was like him. I don't, mm. I, don't, I don't really want to be that writer, as I don't want to do all the drugs and go crazy, but I would mind seeing some people like that, but we get stuck with your Kanye West types and what you consider douches, I would guess.
1: Yeah, there's a pretty low bar for um, being a dangerous eccentric these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's diff- very difficult, I think, to imagine someone like him coming along again. In fact, um, I mean the the climate now sounds a bit like what he um, what he described as in that kind of uh, interval between the Beats and the New Journalism, which he was part of with with, mm-hmm. with Tom Wolfe. That those kind of lacks, sort of slightly directionless, slightly afraid, artistically uh, not as diverse.
2: Right. Yeah. If you look at modern writer uh, modern writing, you don't have too many people who are really willing to shake things up like that mm. uh i mean he was a true original in his own words a freak a mutant you know a weirdo he was he was his own thing and maybe you have some musicians who kind of embody a little bit of that uh, i don't think you have too many in the again the literary world's a lot different now it's really mm. hard to say if you could even have a writer come along the, even if he was like that it would be very popular because a lot of people don't read now
1: uh should probably talk about fear and loathing a little bit. We don't have to get into the um the piece. He'd written um the Kentucky uh Derby bit. Um Do you say Derby or Derby? Derby. Derby. Kentucky Derby uh, piece for Rolling Stone, which I think was his first collaboration with um Stedman. Um yeah. it's very difficult to guess like what their their dynamics actually like because I, I think Stedman plays up sometimes being the um the englishman out of his depth other mm-hmm. times they both um seem to absolutely loathe each other but they're actually kind of <laughs> mocking someone that they're talking to together right um and uh, he would often described as like being um at least as mad as hunter s thompson if not madder. uh but, there was um, a
2: lot of guys involved in hunter s thompson's life that were they were more into you know heavier drug users crazier more wild uh I forget the guy's name, but the one that inspired uh, Dr. Gonzo in the Fear and Loathing. Oscar
1: Oscar Acosta, I think he's called.
2: Yeah, he was a real actual madman, and he ended up disappearing, I think, Mexico or South America somewhere. Just was gone one day, and he never came back. But he was, uh, if you think of Hunter S. Thompson, just imagine him on more drugs and crazier, because that was that guy
1: crazier and i think scarier as well like yeah um, i think that's one violent. thing the film gets really right that scene when he's in the bath it really seems like uh, benicio del toro is going to murder him because that that scene's really the, well the, the bits with them holed up in hotel rooms in the in the book is, is like that yeah and uh seems like he was pretty um pretty scary to be around
2: he did a really good job in the novel of describing the kind of hallucinogenic madness that you would go through in the taking this, you know, what was he taking in the book? Uh, like pure adrenaline or something, and <laughs>
1: an ether. Not,
2: uh, what was it? Like a liter or five gallons? It was like some crazy amount of like raw ether they had. They because yeah. at the very beginning it described their whole set. It was like a like a hundred tabs of acid and mescaline and just like things that would kill anybody. And they, had, they were taking it all.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's very deadpan how, how it's always uh, like, <laughs> I think it's about time we took, we took this. this, this that's, that's what will get us out of this jam. Yeah,
2: <laughs> So just always more drugs. Like when they go into the, what was it they took w- right before they went into the, like, I think it was like a clown theme casino. And uh, it was right before he saw the lizards, I think. Um, but he was they, they could barely walk. They couldn't even get into it. it wasn't mescaline. I think it was something else. Was um, that the
1: ether? Or did they take that? In-
2: it might have been the ether. It was like some kind yeah. of downer. I, I don't know what happens if you take ether. Just, isn't that what you take to uh, put someone out for surgery? Like, isn't
1: that like yeah, an anesthetic? I so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I don't even know where you get raw ether. Uh,
1: Clearly Hunter S. Thompson. He had the connections, apparently. yeah (laughs) Yeah. I don't and I mean it's incredible really that he was a writer full stop like uh just just to to be able to have the concentration to finish even an article when you when that kind of stuff is flying around never mind like doing it all day but um well his
2: daily routine uh is really famous I I guess it was him or somebody who interviewed him wrote it down but I don't have it before me but it's it, it was like every other hour was cocaine use I think And uh, he was constantly drinking whiskey, smoking marijuana, and uh, doing mushrooms, and maybe acid or um. Which what would happen if you took mushrooms and acid together? That seems like a bad idea. But he was taking all these things all day, and I think he woke up at like noon or one. So he was taking them all day. Maybe ate a small meal with a lot of uh, beer or whiskey. And then by the time it was around like midnight, is when he would start writing after a whole day of all this constant drug use. I don't know yes. how you'd get anything accomplished. I would be, well, I'd probably just die. But I, I don't think you could uh, be any kind of creative if you're living that kind of life. I it just doesn't seem possible to me.
1: No, like as early as that Kentucky um, Derby piece, which I think is, oh, it's before um, Fear and Loathing uh he's he's he the deadline's looming and he's he like kind of panics and says you know i just can't send this in it's gibberish but mm-hmm. he has to anyway at that point i think later that sort of worrying about it being gibberish um disappears and that's what that was what i was i was really interested in to read about his wife saying like he really wasn't that comfortable with the gonzo thing at first and then after a certain amount of time, uh, especially around the campaign trail thing, he he embraced it full on and sort of became, uh, was, was seemed in that character all the time. And the, yeah. the serious uh, s- sort of southern gent who wanted to write novels kind of went away.
2: Yeah, that's when he really for uh, kind of um, turned into that Duke character permanently, I think. Yeah. He, uh, his aspiration is to be a full-time just novelist. He That fell off and again what would a Hunter S. Thompson life be like if he ended up quitting drugs at least? Maybe not even the alcohol just the drugs. How, how much more work do you think he would have gotten out? Because he did seem like he really did want to be a serious writer for a while and I think mm-hmm. the drugs just got to him.
1: I don't think he stopped wanting to be a serious writer. I think the novelist thing went mm-hmm. um, when he realized he just He probably just didn't have, how on earth, like like I say, I don't know how you have the stamina to write a fucking sh- short email. That's the other thing, he's constantly writing letters. He's a really prolific and intelligent letter writer. Mad yeah, as usual, but like I was funny, actually, funny letters and thoughtful ones as well.
2: Yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up because a, a friend of mine, he wrote me a letter recently and he described in the letter how he was kind of inspired by Henry S. Thompson um, as a way to spark creativity, and it really does work, is just writing a handwritten letter. And yeah. Um, he, I, yeah, I've read some of Hunter's letters and they're hilarious. He, yeah. he was a very pro, and same with like H.P. Lovecraft and a lot of the great writers, I think even maybe Hemingway, like they wrote a lot of handwritten letters. And I think that was a way to, for him to get into the creative mindset before he would start writing on, uh, you know, whatever piece he was working on at the time
1: get ranting at something or other i think i I might have read this out on our um fear and loathing episode but uh it stands reading again have you ever read his rejection letter to um anthony burgess
2: yeah that was one of my favorite things i think i've ever read because he ends it so nicely um but the whole thing is just like him tearing into this guy
1: He goes, um, dear Mr. Burgess, Herr Herr Wenner has forwarded your useless letter from Rome to the National Affairs desk for my examination and or reply. Unfortunately, we have no international gibberish desk or it would have ended up there. What kind of lame half-mad bullshit are you trying to sneak over on us? Do you take us for a gang of brainless lizards, rich hoodlums, dilettante thugs? You lazy cocksucker. I want that think piece on my desk by Labor Day and I want it ready for press. The time has come and gone when cheap jack scum like you can get away with the <laughs> type of scams you got rich, rich from in the past. Get your worthless ass out of the piazza and d- back on the typewriter. Your type is a dime a dozen around here, Burgess, and I'm fucked if I'm going to stand for it any longer. <laughs> Sincerely, Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: oh. I just love that. It. It's like this sincerely, just to make it sound like he was trying to be genuine and nice. But it's like, no, that was horrible. Just, yeah. You <laughs> just tore but, into that guy for no reason.
1: The preamble to that sets it up so beautifully, as well, which is genuinely that Anthony Burgess was really worried about this piece and had written the kind of letter asking for a little <laughs> bit more time and a bit of direction, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Imagine receiving that. Um,. The only
2: thing that I would take away from that, that would be a positive, was the fact that it came from Hunter Thompson. So yeah. you don't have to take it as seriously if it was the editor of Rolling Stone. But still, uh, that would be kind of a kick, especially if you really uh, admire Hunter Thompson for you know, not just his popularity but the work he's put in. And then you get that from him. Uh, yeah, that'd be terrible. That'd be one of those things that might make you want to quit writing for a while.
1: May I think I think Burgess luckily was a a, a bit older enough older and uh you know imagine if yeah you're right imagine if it had been like an aspiring writer who adored hunter s thompson
2: well from my understanding he's he did send things like that to aspiring writers who sent in their (laughs) initial first (laughs) pitches or first article ideas and they let him read it for some reason and then he responded and just pretty much you never heard of that person again because he just probably ruined their drive to be creative
1: give up you spineless weasel
2: Yeah, yeah pretty much
0: We're doing things like that, yes, in front of the camera, and it will be on film, won't it? Hmm. The way, uh, the the water is without chlorophyll, and the whiskey kills the, what would be the chlorophyll substitute, so every time we make a drink here, we put the ice, the drink in the ice, uh, and then the whole thing into the grass, giving the ice enough time to absorb the chlorophyll. I have now absorbed enough chlorophyll to get back to the drink. That's why I'm so healthy, folks. I always roll my ice in chlorophyll before I drink whiskey. All right, what were you saying?
2: Where do you think Hunter Thompson's career and his style of writing would have went if he kind of dropped the Gonzo style? Because I kind of feel that maybe that, I mean, that became his signature style, but do you think that possibly stunted his writing style? Almost like when you think of certain actors who get, um, who get typecast into a certain role that they're always known for.
1: Yeah, it'd be really interesting to find out. I, I need to read some of his earlier stuff, like The Rum Diary, which I, I haven't read, to get an idea of what he was like before that um, identity was, was fully formed. I think um, Norman Mailer describes meeting him early on and him seeming like a very normal um, and kind of boring young mm-hmm. kid. So who knows what that kid would have gone on to write if he'd like kept plugging away at being a Fitzgerald or a Hemingway for the 60s and 70s but without touching um or getting completely sucked into uh drug addiction it's hard I don't know because everything of his that I've read has been I mean even the novels so so um so journalistic it's really difficult to imagine what his uh his novels would look like
2: hmm I would because The Rum Diary, I think, came out in 98, but mm. they were sitting on that for, what, 20-plus years, 30 years or something? Um, yeah, something like that. So maybe... I, w- I would think that would be less of a gonzo journalism style because that was his time in Puerto Rico, but he was still... See, I-, I haven't read anything like any of his articles or anything before Rolling Stone, so I don't know how he wrote for different periodicals before that. I don't know if he was... Like, even if he had the initial touches of the gonzo journalism. I think that really came about with Fear and Loathing and maybe the Hells Angels thing. I'll have to read more of his work to see kind of what he does. Because the drugs and stuff can't be in all of his work. Like, that just seems that would be excessive. If every article and everything he wrote was from the viewpoint of a guy high on drugs or drunk or crazy... Uh, Because he he was so prolific Mm. that I don't see all of, even his Rolling Stone articles, they can't all be like that. That just, I I don't think that would work. And how would his Gonzo style work without the drug use? Would it just be more of a, like a a war photographer type of thing where you're just describing the images you see and stuff? Or would it still have the blending of, you know, reality and fiction? I'm really interested to get into that at some point um yeah
1: i mean i can i i can recommend um there's a there's a book of his articles called generation of swine which is all all kind of political stuff um and they kind of span a a few years and the chronological so you you hear the story of a few campaigns and that kind of thing um as he's writing them uh and yeah I, i i mean i'm sure there are drug references in there but it's not as if that's the that's what it's founded on um I I definitely want to read some of his earlier stuff, um, and I've read bits of the Hells Angels in in, um, in articles, but never actually the the text. Have you seen? Uh, this is one reason why he was hanging around with SNL people. I remember because he ended up, if not married, like um, in a relationship with a production assistant from SNL for a while. But also, uh, Bill Murray played him in a movie called something like Where the Wild Buffalo Roam. Yeah, he. Have you seen that?
2: Um. I saw parts of that. I never watched that whole movie. Uh, Bill Murray had a similar relationship as Johnny Depp to Hunter S. Thompson. They, were, they became close friends. And again, I, I want to say, I don't remember if he lived with them, but he definitely spent a lot of time, Bill Murray spent a lot of time with Hunter Thompson to try to get his mannerisms down. And he did a pretty good job. He didn't really look like him too much, but uh, um, I forget what that movie was about, like a like they cobbled together parts of like the rum diary and some other things he he's written. Uh, ah, okay. Something. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but it was, it was more of a fiction account versus fear. And loathing is just an adaptation of the book uh, where the wild Buffalo Rome is more of um, like multiple aspects of things he's written and stuff. It was, uh,
1: I didn't realize as well that there was a, there was a first like run up at making uh, fear and loathing with a director. Um, who, uh, not Terry Gilliam um, who sort of came to Owl Farm to meet with Hunter and they were all excited, Hunter included mm-hmm. and then the this director was sort of saying like, oh you know that speech about um, a wave, well we're going to have you like, we're going to like animate one and have it crashing down and Hunter was like that's not how that bit goes at all and then the, this director made the mistake of saying, because the thing that people really remember about um, about fear and loathing in las vegas is those wonderful illustrations (laughs) yeah (laughs) which obviously didn't go down well and he uh he was dropped and luckily terry Gilliam stepped in Mm mm-hmm
2: uh yeah fear and loathing was one of my favorite movies it's ridiculous like much like the novel um it's as faithful as it can be without going too long yeah and uh I mean, Johnny Depp's got to be applauded for pretty much being Hunter S. Thompson in the movie. I liked it. A lot of people... It kind of has a cult following now, but at the time, I don't think it was too popular.
1: No, and and I don't think anyone wanted to make it either. Um Mm-mm. uh But uh, since has become... At least has become a really successful film. There's tons of stories about Johnny Depp and um, Hunter uh, S. Thompson hanging out. My favorite one was... Um, I, d- I can't remember what the setup to this is, but basically Johnny Depp is going to Allen Ginsberg's funeral, who Hunter S. Thompson had like knocked around with in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, Beatnik generation. Yeah. And for some convoluted reason, Johnny Depp is going to give a eulogy at Ginsberg's <laughs> funeral, written by Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> isn't going to be there, but he's faxing in a eulogy. And it's like... Uh, The week before the eulogy, he's still not sent it. The day before, he's still not sent it. And then literally the morning of Johnny Depp's like calling him up, saying, please, will you fax this goddamn eulogy? And he does. And Johnny Depp's like reading it in the car there, uh, (laughs) pissing himself because, again, it's just ripping the sort of shit out of him. He called Ginsberg a dangerous bullfruit with the brain of an open sore (laughs) and the conscience of a virus. (laughs) That's wonderful. He was was crazy, queer, and small, and he'll be looking forward to meeting the Grim Reaper so he can get in his pants.
2: (laughs) Imagine having to read that at somebody's funeral. Like You didn't know you were going to read... You didn't know what it was you were reading until you were on the way there.
1: There's not enough information because I don't know if that's exactly like... What you'd like to think is that that's exactly what Ginsburg would have wanted, and uh, it went yeah. down great. But I have no idea. Like, imagine, like you say, imagine it's not your words, but you stand there in front of loads of strangers yeah. and loved ones of the deceased reading that. I mean,
2: again, it could just be a Hunter Thompson prank. Where he just yeah. wants to prank Johnny Depp by making him do something awful that Ginsburg would have hated. <laughs> you <Yeah>. don't know.
1: <laughs> another phase that I had no idea about. Um, this is maybe another thing to, to read. I I, um, I might order this. Is uh, he ends up going to Hawaii? This is kind of later on. I think it might be eighties. Um, and he writes a book called *The Curse of L- uh, Lono* or *Lono*, who, uh, in his book, is the god that Captain Cook was mistaken for before he was killed by um, the uh, islanders. Mm-hmm. And he writes it in Hawaii. And he gets obsessed with deep sea fishing. He wants to uh, catch a marlin, like <laughs> like Hemingway did. It sounds absolutely uh, uh, nuts, and I, I'd never even heard of it. Um, so there's um, a few works that I'd never.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard oh, of gosh. that one, but I didn't look too deep into it because uh, I think he spent some time in Hawaii. Mm. Uh, I even want to say that he wanted to live there at some point, but then it's something with rich people, or uh, it's okay. hard. It's hard to say, but um, yeah, because he he had his uh, like some fun South American. Um, like you were talking about Brazil earlier, he had some uh, crazy adventures there, some in Africa, you know, that brief time in Vietnam. He, he had a lot of weird moments in his life that to yeah. any other person would be the highlight of their life, good or bad. And to him was just like something he didn't really think about because it just happened so often for him.
1: He even squeezed in um, a quick uh, adventure here in Edinburgh. Um, I remember re- uh, reading In That Generation of Swine book um characterized with the usual turning up late for some kind of speech he was meant to give blowing the whole thing off letting down loads of people
2: uh the amazing thing about him was that he actually made it to 67 to begin with going getting to you know almost 70 years old like for that's for a lot of people like that's a full life so i can see him being like why the fuck am i still alive right now this sucks yeah i don't i don't get to enjoy things i heard all the time um because if you're so used to being a madman doing whatever you want and then your body starts to fail you that Hemingway might have even went through a similar thing because he was a you know high timed adventurer yeah. and by the time he what I don't remember how old he was when he killed himself he wasn't that he wasn't his oldest uh Thompson but
1: I do not think so no
2: I think he was in his 50s but he one thing
1: I'm not sure if we mentioned but his his Hunter's um dad died of this like he basically died of a disease you imagine you'd get if you were chronic drug abuse, like it's awful, like wasting disease.
2: Yeah, um, I uh, read it, and it was it was some weird medical term I never heard before. I didn't look into yeah, it. Yeah, I'd never
1: heard of it. Yeah, I don't need something else to be hypochondriac. Uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> <much>. <laughs> chronic wasting disease. Yeah, that's what I want to think about getting, especially during this time period. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I've just realized I'm out of notes and I've clicked back to zoom and seeing that I'm shrouded in uh, darkness, which is a bit creepy. I'm just going to.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, I found a little strange that you were just getting darker and darker here.
1: There we go.
2: I thought that's the, a... uh, you know, just the veil of the, the night was just coming upon you. I was like, cause it's very bright where I am. And I was like, that's a little strange, but okay
1: yeah the end times are upon us yeah well, we, we've um,
2: gone a good hour and 20 minutes at least into this i think we I covered pretty say, much yeah. everything
1: that's a that's an that's an epic one thank you so much for this not um, a problem at all well it's great to have an american correspondent i might you might give you um the hunter's title what's it desk national desk of affairs <laughs> yeah. national desk of american, american affairs there we go yeah
2: um yeah if you want to cover anything in the future just let me know uh I'm halfway through Moby Dick at the moment. If you ever want to cover that slog, I'll be down for that episode.